Oh shit! I don't. Hold up. Hang on. Oh, yeah, I did, wow. I, I don't have my. Uh, wow. I had to do the thing because Peter didn't remember to remind Sean, who didn't remember. Because I don't have the list up because there's no guests. That's one <laughs> massive bragging right point for Jeremy Ruggles. Yeah, I'm going to ride this high for <laughs> months. <laughs> you could have it. Thank you. I'm not going to fight you. I don't give you more satisfaction. Oh, damn it. <laughs> Feed me. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, underappreciated, and haunted records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, author of the new audiobook, Gimme Some Monin, an Oral History of Erotic Audio. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. Yeah. Are you going on a book tour? Uh, I might. We'll see. Okay. Well, <laughs> since I've been watching too many Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episodes, this week I'm Jeremy Roggles. Terrifying. Yeah. And I heard some news that Sonic Youth may be reuniting, so I wanted to pitch them on a new album. Hmm. Chirone Youth. Interesting. Going in a little bit of like a disco, noise rock crossover direction. I think the world's ready. Yeah, it's the sequel to Chicone Youth. Yeah, definitely. I'm here for it. Make it happen. That's why I pronounced it wrong. I know <laughs> <Yeah>. it's Cerrone. <laughs> you know now. People, <laughs> it's, it's too late. People already shut off the podcast. <laughs> well, I am co-host Peter Cook. And since it's the spooky season, guys, I got to tell you, I'm kind of scared. Could I request something of the two of you to make me feel better and less scared? Mm -hmm. Not if it rains on my Halloween parade. No, I don't think this will. All I need from the both of you is give me love. Oh, we could do that. How much would you say that you need of my love? (laughs) Sean needs a quantity. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Not much, just a little, Sean. Whatever you have left. You, know, you sure you don't need all that I've got? I uh, No, but you're saying you're giving me some love? Not, it doesn't need to be could, all you got. I could probably do that. I could probably spare a bit. I, it sounds like both of you have offered a little love, so we can say love is here. Oh, my God. I, I feel better. You know why? Because love is the answer. Well, now that I've listed off half the track list for the album, (laughs) why don't you tell them what we're here to talk about today, Sean? We are here to talk about the highly influential disco masterpiece from 1977. That's right. Cerrone 3, Supernature. And when I think of uh, scary Halloween music, I usually think of disco. Same, you know, I think we can all agree on this. 
Why did you pick this for our Halloween episode, Sean? <laughs> Listen, the uh, qualifiers for me picking a Halloween record are notoriously very loose <laughs> on this show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'd say the same could go for Christmas albums sometimes, too. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I'm, You know, I've always been a guy that likes to set rules and then immediately start breaking them. <laughs> Sean's favorite Christmas album is Big Star, third. <laughs> yes, that's true. Because it has the song Jesus Christ on it. I like to listen to that while watching Eyes Wide Shut with the audio off. Kind of a Pink Floyd... Oh, sinking them Wizard up. Wizard of Oz type thing. Yeah, you guys should try it. <laughs> oh, man, that might work. It's, it all started here. Yeah, <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah, we'll do it for our holiday party this year, Peter. <laughs> Look forward to it. All right, listen. So this is a Halloween record because the album cover is kind of spooky. It's like a dead body. There's like mutated creatures on the ground. Yeah. There's a man with a mostly unbuttoned shirt. Looking kind of <laughs> menacing. Truly the most <laughs> horrifying part. Yeah. Yeah. I'm afraid of getting lost in those eyes, right? That's the scariest part. Well, the title track has some kind of sci-fi mutant type themes. It's true. Lyrically. It's true. This record this is a disco record where only half the songs are I Love You Baby songs. So what do you think, Jeremy? Are you in on this record? Did it do it for you? Is this the disco record for you? I know you're, you're famously very picky on disco. I am very picky, and that's why I would say, well, yeah, I mean, it adds up like half the record. I was like, all right. I mean, most of it was in, an enjoyable listen. Yeah. But yeah, the, the love you, love you, baby stuff gets really old for me really quick. Mm-hmm. You're more of a conflict-driven kind of hateful person normally yeah and i like to you know whine about humans destroying the earth a lot <laughs> well and well then the, let's get to that title track where, yeah i where, think that's what we all need <laughs> where they humans mess things up and yeah yeah what is so is that the first song on the album sean that is side one track one title track super nature a song about nature and animals mutating and becoming sentient and destroying humanity because of our callousness. And because humans are the real monsters. Exactly. This is the anti-capitalist, anti-global warming disco anthem that we always needed. Here we go. Oh, my God. 
definitely some spooky sounds going on in there. Got the the Halloween vibe. I like that. Okay. Thank you. I also got to say I liked and it stuck out to me that there weren't the classic disco strings that sometimes are not my bag. Shocking. (laughs) (laughs) This was actually one of the first disco records to mix synthesizer and strings. That's a very long song. So as it goes on, there's different elements that are introduced. But yeah, it is... The, the disco production that's all strings and like strings are front in the mix and going the whole time. Those are some of the hardest disco songs for me to really get into. So I feel you on that. I think that's what your average person, if you ask them elements of disco, that would be one of the first things they would name. Yeah, right. <laughs> I really like how, yeah, it starts off pretty sparse and then builds and you're given a pretty clear narrative in this song. Yeah. It's not every day that you get any kind of a narrative in a disco song or a dance song for that matter. No. Yeah. It's usually lyrics are not typically the focus and actually going along with what Jeremy originally questioned there. I was a ways into this album the first time I wasn't necessarily paying attention to the lyrics when I first put this on. And I do feel like I am, I feel like I've heard that track before just incidentally, but I wasn't super familiar with it. And there was a point some, maybe halfway through the album, I was like, wait, this is what we're doing for Halloween. Where is the Halloween? And then I, (laughs) upon second listen, when I was more focused on the lyrics, I was like, this must be it. (laughs) Yeah. That and the vaguely, spacey synthesizer production on it it's i would say it falls more in the realm of science fiction than horror but uh it's it's hard to find dollar bin records that you could be like yes this is a horror themed record start to finish that's worth a dollar yeah that covers pretty firmly in the horror realm of covers i'd say yeah i think so yeah i give it a pass Thank you. That's all I want. <laughs> yeah, this album is one I've been familiar with the cover for a long time. And yeah, some of it was a little familiar when I listened, like I said, but uh, yeah, pretty much new to me, though, overall. Is there any other famous album cover that this one reminds you of? Famous album cover? Mm, infamous would probably be more accurate. Uh not Silver Apple's Contact. <laughs> That's not... it, for some reason, this one always reminds me of the Beatles' Butcher cover. Oh, weird. Yeah. Just, I don't know, the color and the fact that there's like a, you know, a flesh-toned body in the background. Uh, something about it. I just always think of those two records together for some reason. Uh, if anyone's not familiar with the Beatles' Butcher cover... They had an album come out where they had a kind of experimental artwork on the front where they were like wearing lab coats and had baby dolls and raw meat. And uh, it was quickly deemed too offensive and pulled from the shelves. And now if you can find an original, it's very valuable and there's all different variations on it. But that's the Butcher cover. Yeah, it's the Capitol release yesterday and today. Yes. So what was your guys' familiarity with Cerrone before this? 
this album cover, and I feel like I'd heard a song or two from this record in passing in the world. I didn't know much beyond that. I own Cerrone 4 that you made me buy when we were out digging somewhere years ago, Sean. (laughs) (laughs) Checks out. I believe that was in St. Louis. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was when we were out on tour. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that's a that's a favorite of yours. You play it all the time. I I don't play it that much to be honest, but I did like it, and I've listened to other Cerrone on non vinyl, and he definitely seems like one of the more inventive dudes in disco. That he was. He was kind of one of those guys who, as soon as other disco artists heard him, it just seemed like there was a consensus of like, oh yeah, this is what we're trying to do. This guy pretty much nailed it and we just need to do this. I do like how half the time that Sean brings a record, if Jeremy and I are at all familiar with it, it's through Sean already. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's a common theme. Love it. Goes to show how influential you are in both of our lives, Sean. Aw. Maybe some listeners, too. No cap. Aw. <laughs> no cap. Amazing. Well, yeah, I, me personally, this is an artist that I have known about for a long time, as is often the case. I've owned a few records by him, but I'd never read into the history. For me, it was just a guy with really kitschy, kind of awesome album covers and really great well-produced disco music and this has been one of those fun times where reading about an artist just makes me like them even more i already held this guy in high regard and it's been fun doing the research yeah i look forward to finding out what all he's been involved in aside from this project or where his influence goes yeah, we'll get into the details after the, the next song clip, but the the overall impression that I really got to after doing all the research and listening to, about this guy's life story, Cerrone is and was a very talented guy. He's very confident, he's very driven, and he is completely uncompromising in the music and art that he makes. And I'll give you all the reasons why, but let's let's listen to another song first, shall we? We shall. Sean, before we move to the next song, I did want to mention that I noticed Lena Lovitch wrote the words to Supernature. Oh, yeah. I forgot to mention that as well. Really cool collaboration there and worked out so well. I think Cerrone does a lot of the music and production on these records and kind of oversees a lot of the elements, including the artwork. So interesting collaboration and they made a classic. And I want to say an artist we're going to feature in the future. (laughs) I was about to say it. Should I say it? (laughs) Yeah. You know what? I'm going to say it. I refuse. You guys cover Lena Lovage. I'm out. Whoa. No, no, Sean, that's Lydia lunch. You're thinking of. Oh, right. Never mind. Okay. We're good. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, what song did we have next by Cerrone, Sean? Coming up next, we're going to hear Side B, track one, Give Me Love. One of the lesser haunted songs on the record, I must admit. We're going to the non-haunted side. 
one thing I love about Sarone's music is that there's a very human feeling to it, uh, especially with the timing. Some disco records can feel kind of clinical, kind of sterile, you know, like the everything is too fixed and there's there's no there's none of that human timing, that human element to it. Whereas with Sarone, he's the one playing all the drums and all of these mixes are based around the percussion first and then the other elements are added on top. And it was always really important to him to not have it be that sterile, perfect thing. Everything kind of moves around a little bit. There's variations, things come in and out. It's, it's For me, it's very engaging disco music comparatively. Yeah, definitely hype. And I will throw on top of all that, he's got a really wide palette of textures, mm-hmm. uh, sonically speaking, that... Mm-hmm. I did notice some of the disco strings in that last cut, but they were like one of many different things going on, so it didn't feel dominated by that. Yeah, not overused. It's just one of the many ingredients. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like all those ingredients create a musical gumbo. God. (laughs) Uh. You guys ever think about that? Wow. I said I wouldn't do it, Jeremy. I I can't hold back Sean. No one can hold me back, or my gumbo. <laughs> Except for the power of editing yeah. in Jeremy Ruggles' <laughs> <Sure>. hands. <laughs> well, you guys, you guys want to you guys want to learn about Sarone? Yes. Okay. Well, he was born. Should I tell you about him? <laughs> yeah. What do you got? Let me know. What's up? Um, he played in a band called Congas. Yeah. Anything else? And he played the drums. Nice. <laughs> Sounds like a very percussive fellow. Yeah. Yeah. I love it when people condense. I'm the... out of material if you want to take over. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the condensed Wikipedia page. It's real uh, straight to the point. That's pretty much what these episodes are anyway, right? The condensed Wikipedia page. Let's be real <laughs> yeah. here. Just bullet points with no context or explanation. Just the facts. That's us. Just the facts, ma'am. I'd buy that fact for a dollar. Okay. So, Mark Cerrone was born on May 24th, 1952. Bob Dylan's birthday. Really? God, you're, you're such a Peter. <laughs> I was like, should I look up if there's any other famous people with that birthday? Nah, but we got Peter coming in. <laughs> Cerrone started playing drums at the, what I think we'll all agree, the completely reasonable age of 12. Jeremy? Highly reasonable. Okay. All right. (laughs) Great time to start music. You know, it gives him time to just be a kid before he becomes a professional musician at the age of three, like Patrice Russian. Yes. Or George Benson. By all accounts, Cerrone was a very hyperactive child who was often thrown out of class for being disruptive did a lot of hand drumming on his knees and just uh, couldn't really pay attention and his mother promised him that if he could pass the year of school if he could get through it without failing she would buy him a drum set he made it got a new drum set for christmas and continued a lifelong obsession Some of his early influences were Otis Redding, Jimi Hendrix, Carlos Santana, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. In fact, he said that seeing Hendrix live completely cemented his desire to become a professional musician. He just knew that 
this is what he has to do with his life. I think he's the first person to have that experience. Yeah, to have seen Hendrix and <laughs> be, be inspired. Have a complete awakening, yeah. <laughs> they should call it the Jimi Hendrix experience. They should. Interesting. Jeremy, you're a marketer. I'm a natural. Yeah. I'm a supernatural. The one thing I noticed (laughs) with those early influences is he was kind of naturally drawn to the different elements that were used to create disco music. Like, which, I mean, seems obvious. He's an early disco pioneer. Of course, the music he liked would be those ingredients, but... Just the fact that he's coming to it from a whole different country. You know, he's an outsider. Disco is a U.S. thing, and he's reinterpreting it from a whole other continent. Yeah, he's French. And making it somehow more authentic than a lot of the actual original disco artists over here. He left home at the age of 16 because of a dispute with his father, who did not want him to become a professional musician, but... Even at that young of an age, Sarone was so driven that he was ready to just go out on his own. Uh, He began busking on the streets of Saint-Tropez and playing a handful of different bands, eventually the band Congos becoming his main project. While he's still a teenager, um, like 17, 18 maybe, he somehow convinces the owner of Club Med to hire him as the A&R guy. And then starts booking a series of over 40 different rock concerts all over the world at various Club Med locations. You said age 18? 17, 18 by some reports, yeah. (laughs) He sounds like he might be a hypnotist, too. Uh, Apparently he was just, and you know, still is, but is just so charismatic. Like, everyone just loves this guy. Percussive Uh, and persuasive. That's him. He has stated that everything you've heard about Studio 54 pales in comparison to the early days of Club Med. And that not only was that the beginning of his professional music career, but it was the start of his sexual awakening. Okay. What information do you have there for us? (laughs) (laughs) No other specific details on that other than I don't know if you guys noticed the theme with his album covers, but every Cerrone record has naked women on the cover except for the u.s versions which are edited i don't know if you guys looked at all the uh, discogs album covers but he has this reputation of being like one of the most overtly sexual disco artists both in the album artwork and the content there's a lot of suggestive moaning that takes place (laughs) throughout his catalog yeah i just did a quick scroll through discogs and i was like whoa 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 yeah (laughs) it's a theme Except for this album, where it's like dead bodies and scary things. No, there's nudity on the back cover of the European versions. Oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah, there's nudity, I think, on, well, maybe not every release, but at least like the all of the classic vinyl records that you can find if you get a European version, then there's going to be nudity on it. Pro tip. Sean Hartman coming with the pro tips. Yeah. <laughs> Around this time, he also gets noticed by French record producer Eddie Barclay. Uh, This happened while he was out busking on the streets one night, and Eddie came up to him, put a note in his hat that said, like, come to my table, let's talk, and basically offers him a record deal right there, which is how he got his band Congas signed. A little bit of info on the Congas. This is a 
not necessarily a disco band, but one of the bands that was incredibly influential to the disco movement. There was a lot of elements that were similar. They were very uh, percussion forward at a time when that wasn't necessarily the thing that was happening, especially in Europe. People thought it was kind of weird how the bass and drums were much higher in the mix than uh, what they were used to. And they used a lot of like complex percussion. There's the drums, there's lots of alternate percussion going on there. And those sounds were sampled a lot through various stages of electronic music later on, especially like tribal house and that kind of thing. Even before Cerrone went solo, he was massively influential. Yeah, I saw he's the drummer, and then there's two other percussionists in the band. So like half the band was yeah. drums and percussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, you know, it was all European musicians who were interpreting some like kind of Afrobeat influences and just a whole lot of stuff that not everybody was really tapped into yet. The band also featured a young Don Ray, who also went on to be a very influential figure in the European disco scene after the band broke up. But the Congo's first single was released in 1972, and their first LP came out in 1974. They gained a cult following, and like I said, they were especially favored by early disco DJs who loved their complex yet catchy and drum-forward sound. Cerrone left the congas after just a few years in order to pursue a more challenging sound. He kind of felt eventually that they were just too generic of a pop band for him, and he wanted to get out there and try some new things. His first solo album, Love in C Minor, came out in 1976 and was self-released on his own label called Maligator. This is, like, as we've talked about before, the 70s was not a time when many people were operating independent labels that see highly unusual thing to do yeah i skimmed some interviews with him and saw that well a that he seems to have a thing against pop music generally Mm -hmm. and is very uh wants to be more out there and then that first album i saw they were like yeah five thousand is the fewest we can print up so they did five thousand records independently Yeah, he put his own money behind it. Um, He got a lot of pushback. People like, you can't record a record with a 16-minute long single. These drums are way too loud. What are you doing? And he put up his own money to get 5,000 records pressed in the UK. Made his first album cover with nudity on it, hoping that that would help sell it. (laughs) And he began personally distributing them to local French record stores. He just went in, sold them five records, would check back, see if they needed more. And there was one store in particular that was kind of the hot spot for the DJ scene. And every time Cerrone came in, they would buy more. First five, then 10, then 20, and then they would buy boxes of them. Just became this kind of slow build local thing. Until one day, this store accidentally sends a whole box of Cerrone's record Love in C Minor to the United States, to a distributor who they had intended to send a box of Barry White records that hadn't sold to get a refund. And the distributor was intrigued by the provocative album art. And then when they dropped the needle, they were so impressed with the music that they began selling it, quickly sold out and demanded more from this record store. I mean, 
if they were anticipating Barry White albums, they got a similar amount of sexual energy from exactly. the Cerrone <laughs> box. They knew, they knew the target audience. <laughs> so yeah, I just love how this whole thing was so DIY and just kind of accidentally took off. Like that one accidental box just started spreading. And before you knew it, there was it was like this weird legendary figure people you know the the scene is passing these records around like if you heard this Cerrone yet like we don't know who he is we don't know where he is i guess at, at one point donna summer's label casablanca records got a hold of Cerrone's love in c minor and tried to track him down to get him signed but all they had was the info on the record which had the address of the uk pressing plant and went to the uk no one knows who Cerrone is because he doesn't live in that country so they returned unsuccessfully and just got one of their artists to cover the song love in c minor an artist called the heart and soul orchestra and they ended up scoring a top 10 hit with Cerrone's name in the credits on the record and still like basically no one in the u.s knows who or where this guy is wow yeah he started out with his own accidental mythology <laughs> i know like everything about this is just like a charismatic talented dude that just accidentally falls into success while still like not doing the things that you're supposed to do to get successful you know like you're not supposed to break all the rules only when you're Saron exactly or Sean Hartman <laughs> yeah uh when a friend of Saron's told him that his music had suddenly become very popular in America. He thought it was a joke. And then when he found out that it wasn't, he quickly hopped on a plane, went out to New York City, went straight into Atlantic Records, introduced himself, met Ahmet Erdogan, president of Atlantic and very legendary music business figure, who signed him right up and released his second and third solo albums, both in 1977. That's Cerrone's Paradise and Cerrone 3, Supernature. Both albums were very successful. As we said, the groundwork had been laid. And once he had a real label distributing him, sales were just immediately through the roof. Since the beginning, Throne has sold over 30 million albums. Eight million of those were copies of Supernature. Side note. That's funny, Sean. I just, the other day, something I was reading, Ahmet Erdogan came up and I thought, we weirdly have not really talked about him a whole lot on the podcast for how it is weird. Yeah. <laughs> for how big a figure he was and boom, there he is. There he is. Uh, Cerrone has said that Ahmet Erdogan is like the second most important figure in his life as far as his music career, something along those lines. But yeah. Uh, meeting him was a big deal for him. Aside from himself. Yes. Aside from every time he looks in the mirror. <laughs> You guys want to hear another song? Please. Please? Okay. I think I could do that. Uh, we're going we're gonna to hear another love song. This one is side B. Track two, Love Is Here.
Yeah, when that one kicks in, every time I feel like I'm at the end of a musical or something along <laughs> yeah. those lines. Dancing into the sunset. Something that I think is worth mentioning about this record, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, Sean, you've spent more time with this album than I have, but I think each side is a continuous program. The songs all segue. Yes, this is a fully mixed record. There's no dead space between the tracks it's usually like the song will drop out to one element like a string or a drum and that'll go for a, a few seconds and then the next song will pick up but yeah it's a cool thing they, they did that with some a fair amount of disco records and i think the donna summer record we covered had a similar thing to it it did bad girls yes yeah it was one one of the things that i had meant to address and then i got sidetracked trying to appease jeremy with that <laughs> album since he wasn't fully on board jeremy not on board with a disco record <laughs> i'm so predictable <laughs> <laughs> it was early on i i was more con- too concerned with what jeremy thought i didn't realize sometimes there's just no winning him over that's true <laughs> sometimes that boy's just a lost cause valid <laughs> well what else do you have to tell us about mr Sarange, sean well that's most of my notes i'll tell you that as we mentioned before this is the record that really cemented him as a disco superstar and titan yeah absolutely he has continued working throughout his whole life he's had a lot of very high profile concerts he's done he um he put together a piece of music for like a really big concert in japan i believe it was like a live stream concert for their first like high definition television broadcast and there were like eight hundred thousand people in the audience plus the the television audience and that was you know not that long ago so he's remained a notable figure all over the world he's got into a lot of production stuff he's collaborated with other musicians he's experimented with different sounds he's long been close friends with Nile Rogers the two of them have worked together on many projects throughout the years Nile Rogers of Chic that is mm-hmm. and yeah he's just a successful creative guy keeps making interesting music he had a couple different comebacks too throughout his career or achieved success in different audiences uh he experimented a lot with ambient kind of soundscape textures later on and even in the early 80s and like one of the tracks on here that we'll be hearing later and then that mixed with some of the kind of funkier stuff earned him an interesting place in the adult contemporary world in like sometime around the 90s <laughs> and he's obviously been sampled countless times in many different subgenres of electronic dance music he did a high profile collaboration record with the electronic artist bob sinclair who was very very influenced by Sarone's early work and yeah he's received his flowers many times over although the general population i would say he's kind of still an underappreciated guy like i said he sold like 30 million records but certainly not as much of a household name as contemporaries like giorgio Moroder, maybe that's a valid take yeah 
I saw he's out DJing now too. Yeah. Yeah, he is. Although I've heard him say that he much prefers making music in a live setting than preferring than uh, DJing or producing. Again, the that human element to it is very, very important to him. And he believes that the drums is the the heart and soul of music. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, that means it's time to ask you the question, Sean. I can't imagine what question this is. I'm so nervous. The question is, do you have any recommended albums that are similar to this album? Oh, well, that's an easy question. I can, I can answer that. I got three of them written down right here. First up, an artist that could maybe also be featured on a future Halloween episode. It's kind of sci-fi, slightly haunted. But I'm talking about Mandre, their self-titled album from 1977. Another disco artist that very much embraced the theatrical and the spacey synthesizer production and also had an aesthetic look that was very influential for Daft Punk later on. Sounds good. Let's do it next year. All right. (laughs) (laughs) You know... Jeremy, I just realized I don't think that you or I can be at all critical of any of Sean's selections because what have we ever suggested for Halloween? Like as far as any anything he brings for a Halloween episode. Yeah, early on you both were just like, nope, Sean has all future Halloween episodes and we're just going to sit back and talk shit about his selections. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I was on your side here, Sean. That's true. Oh, he was. I'm burning all the bridges with this one. (laughs) Yeah. Next year, you won't be so lucky. You're a Halloween guy now, though. It's just established. That's my thing. That's what I do. Second recommendation, another European underappreciated disco record by an artist named Rosebud. The album is called Disco Balls, parentheses, a tribute to Pink Floyd from 1977. (sighs) in the world it's that was a roller coaster amazing it's so good i haven't met anyone who's ever heard of this record before but every time i play stuff from it i get just like multiple people coming up to me like what is this this rules so if you ever wondered what the disco version of have a cigar sounds like check out rosebud disco balls deal yeah Last up, an artist that I thought about a fair amount in relation to Cerrone while doing this research. There's, there's definitely a lot of differences in the kind of music that they created, but their influence and their level of underappreciation has a lot of parallels. I'm talking about Bo Hannon, and I'm recommending his 1978 album Summertime Groove. Bo Hannon, Bo Hannon, Bo Hannon. Bo Hannon. Both percussionists, both guys that were challenging conventional music format and helping to build what would become the disco and later on electronic music genres. And now both guys that we've covered at some point. Exactly. Very cool. Well, I look forward to checking those out uh, myself, especially Spaceballs. Rosebud. (laughs) Disco balls. Disco balls, right? (laughs) (laughs) Rosebud. A game of telephone must be fun with you, Jeremy. (laughs) Yeah, wow. (laughs) Well, very good, Sean. I 
had a lot of fun getting to know this record. It's odd though. I'm, I don't know if I've just heard some of these selections out at like parties or clubs or something. I definitely was familiar with them. I mean, would these songs have played in any radio formats in their day? They were hits in their day. Yeah. Okay. I mean, this is one of those guys who was big. Like if you were at all familiar with disco music back in the day, this would have been one of the big guys. Like he was everywhere. And then, just you know doesn't get talked about anymore it's really only the record collectors that will tell you that Cerrone is good and even then it's a small percentage of them that collect disco radical well i'm glad that this very haunted record is out there in philadelphia and not near me right now <laughs> too spooky for jeremy keep it away too spooky yeah. jeremy's place is decked out for the season though there's it's true. I even got my dog a little orange piggy, a Halloween colored piggy to play with. Even your extension cord is orange. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> All right. Sean, what was going to be our final selection from this somewhat haunted record today? All right. Well, we're going out on a strong note here. We're going back to the haunted side to what is probably the most haunted song on this record it's very atmospheric so it's a little bit of a glimpse into the kind of style that he would be working a lot more with just a few years after this and it's not a song that you would dj you can't really dance to this one it's just spooky and it's called in the smoke yeah speaking of we just mentioned pink floyd a few minutes ago uh, there were some moments where it got into the spacey or more atmospheric stuff that I got some of the Rick Wright synthesizer stuff in Pink Floyd vibes from this. There's so many disco and dance records where the non-hit tracks just sound like not good versions of the hits, you know, like you can tell why they weren't hits. They're just not that great, but they were trying, you know, whereas this one, He's just doing whatever he wants. Some of these songs are clearly not even the least attempt to make a hit or to write a song that people could even dance to. It's it's more about the artistic statement with this guy. Yeah, the whole album is an adventure if you listen beginning to end. It's an experience. Definitely. All right. Well, thank you listeners for tuning into this spooky edition of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. Peter Pumpkin Eater Cook. You took Pumpkin Eater from me many seasons ago. <laughs> I can never have it back again. I gift it to you though now. Oh, thank you. It's like you just handed you just held out your trick or treat bag and I just gave it to you. You, you gave pumpkin me eater. You gave me love at the beginning of the episode and now you give me pumpkin <laughs> eater. I'm in a very giving mood. Yeah. But he also gave you a travel sized toothbrush and toothpaste though, because he's Still a boring adult, after all. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. <laughs> Brush your teeth. <sighs> well, I'm co-host Jeremy Roggles. And I'm Sean Hartman. Sean stabbed in the heart, man. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, that's me. I'm Sean stabbed in the heart, man. Well done. Cool.